today talking about the fact that indeed God is greater. We're going to talk about God being greater than our fear today. Next week, Jerry's going to talk about how God is greater than injustice. And we've got some great uh, topics over these next five weeks, and I hope that you'll be with us uh, each and every week. Well, you know, as we have, uh, as we've seen in the world uh, just this week, we do live in a culture, in a society where there is chaos, where there is confusion, where there's hatred, there's evil, there's excuses and injustice. And the stress and circumstances of this life, I don't know about you, but I've sometimes found myself just being overwhelmed by it sometimes. I got up this morning early and turned on the news and noticed that just this morning there was a little 10-year-old girl in northern Nigeria that blew herself up and took along with her 20 lives. And I don't know about you, but we can be overwhelmed with things like that, living in a broken, fallen world. And we, we do our best, don't we, to... Uh, to cope with things, but our best most of the time just simply isn't good enough. Our good intentions don't produce the results that we're hoping for. Life seems unfair, life is chaotic, and it's stressful. In fact, the last week, Jerry's going to talk about God being greater than religion. A lot of people have tried religion or religious systems. It's really great to know that God is indeed greater than religious systems as well. What if, however, and this is the question that we want to ask over the next five weeks, what if we spent less energy trying to be better and to make it on our own? Now, what if we really understood that our lives were meant for something greater? What if we really understood that there's a God who loves us and who wants to walk with us and and help us navigate through the pressures of this life? Right at the outset, we want you to know and understand that we believe that much of the time, the reason why we struggle with the circumstances and the stresses of this life is because we do not understand or have never really been fully convinced of who God is. Now, I say that to an American culture, and immediately the pushback is, we know who God is. Most of us have heard about God since we were very, very little children, but, but think with me this morning, just as we begin this new series, do you really have a proper understanding, and if you have a proper understanding of who God is, are you really convinced that he is who he says that he is? This morning, before we dive in, I want to remind you of some of God's attributes, those things that make him uniquely him. Number one, he's always present. We refer to it as he is omnipresent. He's always, always with us. The psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. He's omnipresent. I was watching the football game last night, and and I heard one of the commentators say about Luke Keekley, he's omnipresent. And I thought, no, he's really not. Proved at the end of the game that he really wasn't, right? No, but God is omnipresent. He's he's always with us. That's awesome. Are you convinced of that? Number two, he knows everything. He's omniscient. Now, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Sometimes we wish God wasn't omniscient and he didn't know everything, right? But he does. He knows everything. 
And, and, and you would think that if we were convinced that we are the children of an omniscient God, a God that knows everything, you think, wow, I would want to be really closely involved. I would want to be in close relationship with that person, wouldn't you think? Because he knows everything. He knows tomorrow and I don't. He knows what's going to happen and he's, and he's got it under control. He's omniscient. He's sovereign. I used to say when I was a youth pastor to kids, it means he's the boss, right? You may be the sovereign one in your house, dads or, or moms. You may be the sovereign one there, but you are not the sovereign God of the universe. God is the boss. Daniel said, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He has the power to do as he pleases among the angels of heaven. And with those who live on earth, no one can stop him or challenge him saying, what do you mean by doing these things? He is the boss. He's holy. He's truth. That means that we can believe what he says and we should believe what he says and we should live accordingly. He's righteous. He's just. That means he'll always treat us fairly. God is a God of love, and, and not the love that sometimes we love each other with, which is a conditional love. I love you if you come 50%, I come 50%, and we meet in a good place. No, God loves us with a, with a pure and with a perfect love called agape love. He loves us no matter what is given in return. He goes all in. He demonstrated that by sending his son to die on a cross while we were yet sinners, Paul said to the Romans. Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Nothing, because he loves completely, 100%. He's merciful. Aren't you glad he's merciful? So when I confess, he forgives and he doesn't give me what I deserve. Some of you heard me to say this before. I'm so glad that, that scripture says that his mercies are new every morning. Because I use up this day's mercy, don't you? I use it up and I'm so glad that tomorrow morning there's going to be a new measure of that coming because he's a merciful God. He's faithful. He always keeps his promises. When I don't keep my promise, I tell you I'm going to do something. I tell one of my kids I'm going to do something and then I, it, just, it just doesn't happen. God never does that. He is faithful. What he says he will do. He's immutable. means he never changes. What a great doctrine. I wish we could stop just there and just preach on the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. He never changes his mind, and aren't you glad? When he said, come to me all you who are weary and are heavy laden, I'm gonna give you rest. When he promises an eternity that's secure in heaven, we can trust him because he doesn't change his mind. And all these attributes point to one that we're gonna be talking about in this series in the macro sense, and that is that he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that that is the God that we serve? Because I submit to you this morning that if you believe that God is that great, that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, then you will recognize, even before Jerry or I say one word in the next five weeks, that God is greater than your fear. He is greater than injustice. He is greater than your past. He is greater than anything that's going to happen in your life. God is ultimate. He is greater because he is omnipotent. Do you believe that this morning? You see, most of the reason why we struggle with this thing we call life is because we either don't understand or we're not fully convinced that God is who he says that he is. 
And yet the prophet Jeremiah said, O sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and earth by your great power. Nothing is too hard for you. The psalmist said, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah said, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I didn't need any other help. Why? Because I'm omnipotent. I'm all powerful. And then I love what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. That's who God is. That's why we have a series that we call Greater. Because God is greater than all of the things that we will talk about over the next five weeks. Now, the grand narrative of Scripture is filled with people who were less than great. Aren't you glad for that? Because the truth is, most of us are less than great. There's a couple of you that might be kind of great, all right? But most of us are somewhat less than great. And I'm glad that, that, that God's story is full of people who are much less than great. But God continually uses them, and in spite of themselves, in spite of their circumstances, he does great things in them and through them. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to see that God's greater than our fear. He's greater than, our, than injustice. He's greater than our past. And he is certainly greater than any religious system. And this morning, we want to dive in and talk about God being greater than our fear. I realized this just this week. I probably should have known this. I'm 48 years old. I know I don't look it, but I am. I realized that just this week that we are only born with two fears. Did you know that? Researchers tell us that we're born with two fears and the rest we develop along life's journey. Number one is we are born with a fear of falling. You realize that? You think about this, all you parents, and some of you are there right now, some of you have been there, when you put that little kid up for the first time and you go, I think he's ready to take his, go to dada, and he gets up or she gets up and she starts to move, and, and what happens? She, they're going like this, why? Because they don't want to fall. There is a fear of falling. The other is we're born with a fear of loud noises. Now, you think about this. If I came to your house this afternoon and there was nobody in the room and I walked in very quietly and all of a sudden I just clap my hands like that, everybody would be stunned, right? Where we have a fear of loud noises. Researchers tell us those are the only two that we're born with. Any other fear that you experience, you've acquired throughout your life and it's caused by certain events and situations that have marked your mind and emotions in a way that make you feel scared. Now, if you grew up in my home and my kids, they're fearful of some things because of me, because I've scared them over the years, and that's the reason. But you're only born with those two. I'd admit to you that uh, I am somewhat fearful. I know men aren't supposed to be afraid, but I got lots of things I'm afraid of, and I'm a man, I'm not afraid to admit it. Probably my greatest fear, I think, is snakes. And I know there are others of you that feel that same way. I, I have dreams of of, of snakes chasing me. Ever since I was a little boy, I, I can remember, I, I woke up just a few weeks ago convinced that there were snakes in my bed wanting to jump out of the bed. And it was just my wife. And <laughs> I'm gonna stop there, just gonna let that go right by. But I, I don't like snakes. And I've had people tell me, oh, there's good snakes. There are no good snakes in my mind. 
All snakes are bad. I had a black snake in my yard one time, about six feet long, and uh, the boys came in, told me there was a snake outside. I thought it was a stick. It was a snake. I got the shovel. I beat that snake. I cut him up into so many pieces. And you would have thought, you know, that I had killed a little child. People told me, oh, you can't believe you killed the snake. The black snake's a good snake. There is no good snake. I'm afraid of snakes. I've had people say to me, uh, hey, you know what? Snakes actually are more afraid of us than we are of them. That's not true. It's not true at all. There is no way, no snake that could ever be as afraid of me as I am of it. And it has nothing to do with poison. It has everything to do with their slimy, little, curly, whatever. I just don't like them. I hate them. I'm fearful of them. There was a recent article that appeared in, the New York, in a New York City magazine that highlighted the results of a survey where people were asked what they're afraid of. There's five answers that were given. One group said they were afraid of walking alone at night. Anybody afraid of that? Probably not in Cary, but trust me, there are certain places where you might be afraid. Number two, becoming the victim of identity theft. I thought that was odd. Like, I never spend any time, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about snakes, but I never spend any time thinking about being a victim of identity theft. Number three was general safety on the internet. Uh, again, I'm really not scared. Like, it's a screen, right? I mean, who's going to come through the screen and boo? You know, I don't know. I, I, I get all the things that go on. Okay, I'm not that naive, but... Number four, being the victim of a mass shooting. That's, that's relevant, right? Especially in the news that we've listened to just this week. And I thought it was interesting. Number five, number five most often given answer is what people are afraid of. They're afraid of public speaking, which I think is hilarious, right? I mean, I'd rather speak to 20 million people than I would hold a snake. I mean, that's just, and snakes aren't on here anywhere. I don't, I don't get that. You know, fear has a way of paralyzing us, doesn't it? Think about what you're fearful of right now. And I'm not talking just silly little fears that you might have, like I have of snakes. I'm talking about the significant things in your life that you're afraid of right now. Doesn't fear have a way of paralyzing us? Fear can cause us to stop dead in our tracks and do absolutely nothing. In fact, consider these things. I wrote them down so I would get them right when I repeated them to you. My fear of death can cause me to be so concerned about what tomorrow brings that I miss the joy and opportunities of today. My fear of failure can cause me not to attempt anything great and to be mediocre or simply do nothing. My fear of life change can cause me to continue in my destructive habits and behavior and I could end up wasting my life. My fear of something bad happening to my kids can cause me to smother my kids and not allow them to experience real life. My fear of not having enough money might cause me to keep too much for myself and not invest in the things that ultimately really count and really matter. My fear of the unknown can cause me not to live in the reality of the known today. See, fear can paralyze us. If we don't get to the point where we understand that God is greater than any of those fears that we have, then we can literally be paralyzed and sit back and do absolutely nothing. Do you know, almost without exception, the men and women that God used in Scripture, at one point in their life before God used them, they were fearful. They were afraid. I mean, you go all the way back to, we just came through the Christmas season, and you remember when the angel appeared to Mary, and she was afraid, right? She was fearful. I, I think about all kinds of examples we're given in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's often referred to as what? It's referred to as the hall of faith. You ever look through there and you go, 
what's she on here for? Why did he make that, right? Because at one point, they, they were all fearful. They all had doubts in their life that, that God may not really be as great as maybe they've said that he is. Consider some of these folks with me. How about Noah? God comes to Noah and he tells him to build a big boat in his backyard. And Noah's like, I don't know what that looks like. And then he says, rain's gonna come. I mean, you, you think Noah was ever fearful? Do you think Noah just went, okay, I'll do that. And then the rain started coming and this boat took off and for the first time he was sailing and he thought that was totally normal and there was no fear. He wasn't afraid that God was gonna show up and be and do exactly what he said he would do. Joshua, God comes to Joshua and he says, I want you to march around this city and, and when you get around the seventh time, the walls are gonna cave in and you're gonna go and you're gonna take the city. You're not gonna have any weapons or anything else. You're just gonna, you think he was afraid or he just went, okay, I guess that's how it works. How about Moses? We know Moses was afraid when God came to him and he said, hey, I want you to go and lead my people out of Egypt. Moses didn't go, okay, I'll go. He didn't, he was scared, he was afraid. Who, me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you just think that they, they gave no thought whatsoever to bowing before that image and just said, God is our God and we will? I think they were afraid. Now they ended up doing what was right, but I think that there was fear there. Furnaces are hot, you know? Fire burns, it hurts. You think Daniel was afraid when he went into the lion's den? We always tell the story in children's ministry and we talk about Daniel, you know, he just walked around. Hey, nice little lion. You think he was ever fearful? I think he was afraid. Now, he became convinced that God would do what he said he would do, that God was who he said he was. How about Elijah's with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel? Has a great victory up there. You would think he would be convinced and there would be no fear in his life at all. And yet, just moments after that, he finds himself running away from a woman who is out to destroy him. All of these people ultimately chose to obey God and to understand that he was greater than any fear that they might have. And if somehow they could, they, could, they could believe that and behave that way in their life, that God would use them. And I want to highlight just for a few moments uh, this morning, and I say just a few moments because I realized in the first service that the story is probably like an hour and a half story. So unless you want to stay here till one o'clock, I'm going to really summarize it. We're going to come back to it at a later time. But I want to introduce you to a man named Gideon. Many of you probably are not familiar uh, with the story, but if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Judges chapter 6. I want to give you a little bit of a background. There's about 40 years of peace that have just occurred because uh, Judge Deborah had had a victory in Canaan. Now, some of you might not be familiar with Judge Deborah. This isn't Judge Judy, all right? Some of you know who she is. You watch her, you know, in the afternoons, and she's, this is Judge Deborah. If you've never read Judges chapter four and five, and I mean really read it like so that you understand it, I want you to do that this week. Don't read it to your little kids while you're going to bed, all right? It's kind of a, kind of a really tough story there. But Deborah is quite the woman. God uses her in an incredible way. As a result, there's 40 years of peace. But once again, when we get to chapter six, the children of Israel have done what they've done so often. They disobey God. They do evil. God sends somebody to oppress them, to overtake them. They get tired of that. They start whining. They start crying. God, where have you left us? We should have gone back. We should have stayed in Egypt. It was better there. God sends a deliverer. They party. They're excited. And then all of a sudden they go back and they just keep repeating the cycle over and over and over and over again. Does it sound familiar to anybody, right? That's the way most of us live our lives, unfortunately. 
And so in chapter 6, they've blown it again, and God sends the Midianites and the Amalekites to oppress them. The Israelites would plant crops, and the Midianites would destroy them. They ate all the fruit in the land, and they used all the animals. There were lots of them, so many of them, it says they had more camel than, than sand. Life was bad, and so in verse 6, the people do what they always do. They cry out to God as they'd done so many times before, and God chooses a man to deliver them for the oppressors, from their oppressors, and that's where we pick it up in verse 11. So an angel of the Lord comes to this man named Gideon under a tree, and verse 12 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You should laugh, all right? Laugh. Come on. You don't know what's coming, but you should laugh, right? That's an appropriate time to laugh. Oh, mighty man of valor. Now think about this. What is the mighty man of valor doing? Look back at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a tree, which belonged to Joash, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press. All right? Now I don't know a lot about farming. I don't know a lot about threshing wheat, but I know that you don't do it in a wine press. Do you know why he was in a wine press? Why does it say? He wanted to hide it from the Midianites. He was scared. He was frightened. So the irony of the whole thing is that the angel of the Lord comes to him, and some commentators believe this is sarcasm. I don't believe it's sarcasm. I believe God's just trying, trying to stoke his ego a little bit. And he says to him, oh, mighty man of valor. That'd be like me chopping up a black snake in the backyard and you coming, my wife coming out the back door going, oh, you mighty man of valor. And I don't think so, right? Like that's not your best moment right there. Gideon says, verse 13, his response was, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Interestingly enough, and this is why I wish we had opportunity to really dissect the story, this is so typical of us as human beings. If God's with me, why am I uncomfortable? Why am I having trouble? Do you recognize that most of the time we find ourselves miserable and in trouble and not where we should be is because of decisions that we've made in the past? maybe rather than crying out to God and saying, God, why have you done this to me? Maybe we should look in the mirror and say, why have I done this to myself? Why have I behaved in these ways? Why have I ignored, for example, my, my, my ability to be able to control my finances and I find myself not being able to pay my bills? Why have I behaved this way with my spouse for so many years and now all of a sudden he or she is walking out on me? Could it be the possibility that because you've behaved the way that you behaved, that ultimately there are consequences to the behavior? It's interesting that Gideon acts as if he does not know why the people find themselves in the situation that they're in. And we often do the same thing. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I do this? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. Just like others before him, Gideon said, do you know who I am? You ever done that when God called you or you feel God calling you to do something and you go, mm, not sure I can do that. And you want to look back at God and go, do you know who I am? And like, you know, he doesn't. No, who are you? Please introduce yourself. Tell me all about yourself. When were you born? Tell me all your gifts, all your... Gideon says, I'm from a family who's the weakest in our tribe and I happen to be the youngest in that family. You sure you got the right guy? And then he says, give me a sign. Show me, if this is really what you want me to do, then show me. And so I have to summarize, but really, really, again, you should go back and read this. He gets uh, some meat, and he gets uh, some bread, and he goes, and he puts it on a rock. The angel of the Lord says, pour broth all over it. And the angel comes down, and he takes his staff, and he touches it, and all the meat and all the, uh, all the bread is consumed by fire. Now, if that was you or me, you'd like to think we'd just go, okay, got it. What do you want me to do, right? 
No. Now he's afraid because he's seen an angel. <laughs> and God says, don't worry about that. You're not going to die. But I do want you to go and tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole, which was a sacred tree near a religious site to honor the goddess Asherah. I want you to go tear that down. So God's saying, I'm going to see if you, if, you got enough, if you got enough faith to do this. And so Gideon goes and he does that. And it's interesting that the text says in verse 27, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it at night. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just chicken. I'm just afraid. So he does it at night, and um, the men wake up the next morning, and they realize that the altar to Baal has been broken down, and the Asherah pole has been cut down. They do a little bit of investigation. They find out it's Gideon. They want to kill him. And Joash, his father, says, no, don't kill him. If Baal wants to kill him, then let Baal go after him. And for whatever reason, that's good enough for the men, and they don't kill Gideon. And as we get down to verse 33, the Midianites and the Malachites begin to sense that something's going on. They see this altar broken down. They've heard about this stuff going on with Gideon. And you would think that Gideon was now convinced that, that, that this is what God wanted him to do, but, but not just yet. Because as you look at verses 36 to 40, he wants to pull a, put a wool fleece on the threshing floor, and he asks God to make the fleece wet and all the ground around it dry. I don't know how you come up with these ideas, all right? I guess maybe in the Bible that was something common, right? It wouldn't be the first thing that I'd think of. And God, God is so patient. Are you ever, I am on a regular basis, overwhelmed at the patience of a sovereign, omnipotent God with people like us? He's patient. And what does he do? Gideon wakes up the next day, the fleece is wet. He rings it out and he goes, Awesome. Well, now you would go, okay, well, that doesn't happen every day, right? God is definitely with me. I'm not afraid anymore. Let's go. No, he says, okay, one more thing. One more thing. Tonight, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground all around to be wet. And at that point, if I'm God, I'm going, mm, no, and I just destroy him, right? Do you do that? That's what I'd do. Like, I wouldn't have gone that far. But God's patient with him. And he wants him to be confident in who he is, that he's greater than the fear that, that Gideon has. And so God does it again. Fleece is dry, ground's wet. And Gideon says, okay. Oh, I think he says, okay. In chapter seven, Gideon gathers an army of 32,000 and you think, well, that's great. He's got 32,000 people. He's, he's all good to go. And, and God says, eh, too many. Why don't you go to them and ask him, is anybody afraid? And so they go to the men, and is anybody afraid? If anybody's afraid, hey, no harm, no foul, you can go home right now. <laughs> and uh, 22,000 of them go, good, because we're afraid. And they go home. And Gideon's going, okay, now we're down to 10. 10,000, that's still a lot of guys. And God goes, no, no, that's too many. Now, again, this is where I'd really love for us to park. You know, we've said around here so many times that we want God to do something so great here at Northwest Community Church that none of us could ever get the credit for, us, for it. That only God could get the credit, realizing that he is greater, that he is bigger. And that's exactly what God's doing here with Gideon. He said, no, no, no. If I let you take 10,000 guys, if I let you take 32,000 guys, then there are people that will say, look what we did. So you can't take 10,000. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the water, and let's see how they drink water at the, wa water at the, uh, at the river. Going, What? Takes all 10,000 of them. Wouldn't you love to have video footage of this event? He takes all 10,000 of them down to the water and he's gonna separate them by the men that get down on their knees and lap it up like dogs. 
as opposed to the men that cup the water in their hand and bring it up to their mouth. 9,700 of those guys get down like dogs. I've been thinking this week, how many of you would have done that? I've never gone down to a river, gotten on my knees, and lapped like a horse. Have you? I mean, I just, but 9,700 out of 10,000 did, right? Must have been something they did back in the day. And so he's left with 300 men. Now, at this moment, Gideon's got to be going, all right, now I'm really scared. Now I'm really petrified. And it's obvious in verse 9 of chapter 7 that the Lord knows that Gideon has doubts and he's scared. Why wouldn't he be? The Lord has sent 31,700, exactly, of his men back to their tents. Here's what's really cool, though. God does know our heart. Do you know that God knows this morning when we are afraid? In fact, that's why the psalmist said, when I am afraid, I'll do what? I will trust in him. God knows that. God knows what you're fearful about this morning. I think it's so awesome, and God doesn't go, come on! You know, do you know who I, that's what I do. Do you know who I am? I am the omnipotent, omniscient. I am God. Why are you fearful? It's not what he does. In verse 9, he senses that Gideon still has doubts. And so he says in verse 10, If you're afraid, go down and go to the camp with Pure, your servant. You'll hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. In other words, go down there and spy it out. And so he goes down there and he finds out that there's a lot of people there, and that makes him really scared, and there's a lot of camels. Camels are scary, by the way, if you've ever seen them out in the wild. They really are. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. I had a dream like that once, didn't you? I mean, what? I dreamed that there was a big barley loaf that came rolling. I've dreamt of dying a lot of ways, but a barley loaf, you know, rolling into my home is not one of them. His friend, however, says to Gideon, look at verse 14. Here's the interpretation of that, Gideon. There, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. That's it. And all of a sudden, Gideon realizes, you know what? God is greater than any fear that I might have. God's got this. And so he takes 300 men, and we have to summarize. Great story here. All right, read this one to your kids. This is awesome. He takes 300 men. They have a trumpet, and they have a pitcher, and they go down there. They divide into three groups of 100, and all of a sudden, they start blowing those trumpets, and they break those pitchers and, and get their torches out. And The people of Midian are scared, and they begin to cry out, and they literally begin to destroy one another, and the people that aren't destroyed, they go running off, and Gideon has an incredible victory over the Midianites. In fact, verse 25, I have to read this. Verse 25 says, And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Imagine what a great event that was. Here they are. That was awesome. Israel then has quietness for about another 40 years for the remainder of Gideon's life. God uses Gideon to free his people from their oppressors. 
a man who considered himself to be nothing more than a frightened young man who came from an insignificant family and possessed nothing more than ultimately a belief in God that God was greater than his fears. All right, let's land the plane. Here's the deal. If you and I are going to live in fear and be unwilling to take risk, then we will never, ever, ever discover what living by faith is all about. It'll never happen. If we have to have all the answers before we make a decision, if we're afraid to take a step unless we know everything will work out to our advantage, faith will always be a mystery to us. One pastor said it this way. He said, Christ calls us to take risks for kingdom purposes. Almost every message of American consumerism says just the opposite. Maximize comfort and security, now not in heaven. Christ doesn't join that course. To every timid saint wavering on the edge of some dangerous gospel venture, he says, fear not, Luke 12, 4, you can only be killed. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Yes, by all means, this pastor says, maximize your joy. How? For the sake of love, risk being reviled and persecuted and lied about. Because Matthew 5 says, for your reward is great in heaven. He ends that section by saying, by removing eternal risk, Christ calls his people to continual temporal risk. In other words, if there isn't anything you can do to me, if I really can't die because to die is gain, as Paul said, and I just go to be with Jesus, then, then bring it on. I mean, what would you do if you really believed that truth this morning? There would be no fear. And so there are three things that we need to know if we're going to think about living life, believing that God is indeed greater than our fear. Number one, God will often lead us to do things we're afraid to do and go places we might be afraid to go. Trust me, that's what will happen. Often I've found in life that things I don't want to do produce the most satisfaction. You ever found that to be true? It's the old adage, no pain. Great. All right, no pain, no gain. If it's easy, then it's probably ultimately not going to be satisfying. I think God works that way in our life. We never seem to like what is ultimately best until we go down the road and realize that it was actually the best thing. I remember the first time that I went to Kenya back right after 9-11, I was really scared to go. I had heard stories about Africa. I'd never been to the continent of Africa. And I thought, surely they're going to put me on some giant skewer over an open fire. I'm never going to see my family again. You know, and, and it was just, you know, after 9-11, we're just scared about a lot of stuff happening, right? And I'm like, I just don't want to go. And there were these other guys that were going. And, you know, our missions pastor's like, ah, I really want you to go. I bought your ticket. You know, we're going to waste the money. And so, okay, I'll go. Well, just a few weeks ago, I took my 10th trip to Kenya. And I'm telling you, Brian Hoig will testify to this, I love it so much being there and seeing what God's doing and how God's using those pastors that we support there and how people are coming to Christ. And I never would have experienced that had I not understood that sometimes God will cause me to do things that I'm afraid to do and go places that I'm afraid to go. That's oftentimes how God works. Number two, fear and failure only come when we begin to believe that success depends on us. That's the problem for many of us. We think that success depends on us. I have great news for you this morning, and for me, it's not about us. 
It's not about us. It doesn't depend on us. When it's about you, then there is reason for fear and the possibility of failure. When it's about God and it's attempted for him and for his glory, then there is no need to fear. By the way, many people say this. I read it on Facebook. People tell you, they put their arm around you and say, just remember, God won't bring anything into your life that you can't handle. That's a lie. Okay? You heard it here. Tweet that. That's a lie. It's a myth. It's not true. In fact, I would say just the opposite. God will, on a regular basis, put you in situations that you can't handle. God doesn't go, okay, she's kind of fragile, she's kind of frail, I'll take her right up to this, she's really afraid, I'll just take her right up to this point. No, God will take you over the edge. Why? Because he wants to prove that he's bigger than your fear. And if he doesn't take you up to the edge, if you take 32,000 men down to defeat the Midianites, then you might say, hey, look what we did. If you take 300, it's all about God, right? Fear and failure only come when we begin to believe that success depends on us. And then lastly, God is most consumed with his glory and not our comfort. We say that around here a lot of times, and it's because we believe that to be true. God doesn't necessarily care about my comfort or your comfort. In American consumerism, we've bought into that. We think that, you know, we go into McDonald's, it's all about us. How do you want your sandwich? We go into a restaurant, they do everything. We go into a clothing store, they tailor, they do everything. It's all about you and all about how you want things to be. And God doesn't work that way. God is not most consumed with our comfort. He is most consumed with his glory. And he could do all that he wants to do on this planet, in this earth, till he comes back. He could do it all without you and without me. Do you recognize that? And yet he chooses, in spite of us, he chooses to use us and allow us to be part of that. He involves us in something that's so much bigger than we are. And so let me ask you this. What would you do, or what has God called you to do that you're not doing? Because you don't want to take a risk. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to be uncomfortable. You're afraid. What would you attempt for God if you knew that success or failure did not depend upon you? And what would you do if you truly lived life convinced that God was greater than your fear? I'll give you some suggestions. Would, would, would maybe you lead a life group? Maybe you've got good Bible knowledge and you love people, but you've kind of gone, I don't know, maybe nobody will ever want to come to my life group. I don't really want to step out and do that. Would you teach a children's class? Would you help in a student ministry? Would you go to camp and be a counselor for sixth grade boys? Talk about fear. There's fear right there, right? Would you do that if you felt like success did not depend upon you and that God was greater than any fear that you might have? Would you talk to a neighbor or a coworker about Christ? Would you organize a ministry outreach in our community? Maybe God's been speaking to you about leaving the security of your present employment and, and doing some type of nonprofit ministry or something like that. And you've said, no, no, I, I, I don't know if I could ever provide for my family. Would you do that if you believed that God was greater than your fear? For some of us, it might be as significant as life change. Would you change some area in your life, some destructive habit that you have, some lifestyle that, that you've developed that you know is wrong and it's controlling you and it's, become, it's keeping you from becoming what God wants you to be. But you're fearful of change and what that might look like and how would you ever give up that habit or give up that lifestyle? 
Maybe God wants you to make a substantial financial investment into some type of, of ministry, something that, that's totally outside of your world, and yet you say, I don't know if I can do that because you're worried that you might not have enough for yourself. What would you do if you were convinced that God was greater than any of those fears and that what God called you to do, he would equip you to do, and he would bring about success as he defines it, not as we define it? The problem for many of us is that we do not behave like we say we believe, right? We just don't. We say we believe that one day there's a trumpet that's going to sound, and Jesus is going to come back for us, and those that are dead and those that are alive in Christ, we're going to go meet him in the clouds. We believe that, and we should believe it because the Bible says that that's true. But we don't really behave like we believe that God can handle anything that's in our lives today in spite of the tumultuous world that we live in. We don't behave that way. Now, if you're here this morning, your greatest need for God, your greatest need for God is to have a relationship with him. And what's really sad is that I know that there are people in the auditorium this morning and that you don't have a relationship with Jesus as your Savior, and there may be reasons why you haven't stepped out in faith and begun that relationship. Maybe it's because of your pride, Maybe you've been scared about how your life might change. Maybe you just don't think you're good enough. Bingo, you're not. That's why you need Jesus. That's what Jesus came for because we're not good enough. We have a sin debt that has separated us from God and Jesus paid that price on the cross so that we could come into the relationship that we were created to have. So that we might, as John 10.10 10 says, have real life, abundant life. One translation says, life to the max. Life to the full. Why? Why is all of that possible? Because God is indeed greater. If he wasn't greater, we are fools for being here this morning. We should be at home getting the nachos and the hamburgers ready for football this afternoon. If God is not greater. But God is greater. God is greater than our fear. And what God calls us to do, he will equip us to do. He will give us the ability to do, to accomplish great things for him in spite of the tumultuous, chaotic world that you and I live in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. God, thanks for Gideon. Thanks for the raw story in scripture where he's exposed to being a fraidy cat. I'm just so thankful for that because it makes me feel better when I'm afraid. To know that that mighty man of valor, who in the end, the angel had it right, he was, felt insignificant sometimes. He felt afraid. He had fears. God, we have fears because we live in a, in a messed up world. We've seen it just this week on our TV screens. But God, we don't want to be people that live in fear and are paralyzed and stuck because of our fears. We want to be people who believe that God is greater. So God, we close this morning by singing that to you in affirmation. Cause them not just to be words that we utter, but to be words that go to the bottom of our souls and affect our behavior this week. We pray in Jesus' name.